True or false, big government is stifling the American spirit. Well, let's have it out right here and right now. Welcome, everyone, to another debate from Intelligence Squared U.S., a contest of ideas, a verbal joust which only one side can win. I'm John Donvan of ABC News, welcoming you to the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University and to hundreds of NPR stations across the nation As these two teams on either side of me, two teams of two, try to win you over, the motion we are debating, big government is stifling the American spirit. And comprising the team that is arguing for this motion, we have Phil Graham and Art Laffer. And I'd like to begin by talking to Phil Graham. You are now a banker, but you long ago were a professor of economics. And in the time in between, you spent two decades in Congress where your reputation was made as a senator and congressman. And I don't think many people know this, but you now remember this, but you actually went into Congress as a Democrat. And it was at the time that you supported the Reagan tax cuts in 1981 that your fellow Democrats pushed you off of the House Budget Committee and you switched parties. As you think back, was that a traumatic event or was your inner Republican screaming to get out all along? I did more than that. I resigned from Congress and I went back home and I ran again because I'd been elected as a Democrat. And even though I'd been rated as the most conservative member of Congress, I wanted people to have a choice as to whether I stayed or not. Art Laffer, your partner, is the only member of this panel who has an actual entry in an online dictionary when you look up Laffer Curve. This is Laffer. Made famous in the 1980s as a symbolic uh, representation of the concept that in certain situations, as you lower taxes, government revenue can actually go up. And Art, the, 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 the myth of, or the story about this is that you actually brought this to the Gerald Ford White House. You sat down with two young men named Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and drew it on a napkin. Once and for all, is it true? Was there a napkin? Yes. <laughs> you bring any napkins tonight? For a price. Okay. <laughs> Your opponents who are arguing against the motion that big government is stifling the American spirit. I'd like to introduce Laura Tyson, an economist. Your resume has a fair sprinkling of the phrase first female to. First female to be dean of the London School of Economics, first female chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. That was in the Clinton administration. At MIT, as a young student, you were the first female to write a 532-page thesis. We do do our research. 532-page oh thesis titled Inflation in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia, 1962, 1972, an empirical analysis. We all read it. Yes, absolutely. A terrific read. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. In in one sentence, why you're on this side? You know, I, I really do believe that there are tasks that are appropriate for governments to carry out and that citizens wish them to carry them out and that we have to worry about doing them well, but we have to do them. Thank you very much. And your partner, Nouriel Roubini, who famously predicted the housing bubble and then predicted the crisis that followed it. You were right, fortunately for you. This is your second debate with us. You previously debated that the financial crisis should be blamed on Washington, not on Wall Street. You won overwhelmingly 60 percent. So you are risking your perfect record by being here tonight. Welcome, Nouriel Roubini. Great being here. And to all of our debaters. So in this debate, you are live audience are the judges. By the time the debate has concluded, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before the debate, and once again at the end, after all of the arguments have been made. And the team that has changed the most minds in the course of the debate shall be declared our winner. On to round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. 
opening statements by each side in turn. And here to make the first argument for the motion that big government is stifling the American spirit, Phil Graham, a former senator and, current, and chairman of the banking committee, currently vice chairman of UBS Investment Bank. Ladies and gentlemen, Phil Graham. Since the Enlightenment, it has generally been accepted that limited government is the key to freedom and that freedom is the key to unleashing human potential. And America is proof that freedom works. When economic freedom is imperiled, prosperity wanes. Our economic freedom is imperiled. Just two years ago, the national debt of our country was 40% of our annual production. Two years later, our national debt is 60% of annual production. And under the current budget that Congress is operating on, by the end of the decade, our national debt will be 90 cents out of every dollar of goods and services produced annually by America. This is big government stifling the American spirit. If you listen to Washington, this problem's easy to solve. All you got to do is tax rich people. Well, rich people already pay more of the taxes than at any time in American history. And the problem is there are not just enough of them. Our problem is if you took every penny earned by every person or entity in the top 1% of the tax bracket, you couldn't deal with our deficit, much less our debt. The solution to excess spending is not excess taxes. It's less spending. If you're in a hole and you can't get out, the first thing you need to do is stop digging. And stop digging now means stop spending. It's important to remember that we overcame 10% unemployment, double-digit inflation, malaise, self-doubt, and the Soviet Union in the 1980s under Ronald Reagan. It seems like an eternity ago, but remember... A Republican Congress worked with Bill Clinton to reform welfare and to balance the budget. We did it once. We can do it again, but we can't do it with the same old programs and the same old politics as usual. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Phil Graham. Our motion is big government is stifling the American spirit. And now to speak first against this motion, Laura Tyson, a professor at Berkeley's Haas Business School and a member of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. How big should the government be is my question. And I think that depends. It depends upon the tasks and the challenges that government undertakes. It depends upon what its citizens want the government to do. The government in a democracy is us. We have to look to ourselves. And one of the main points I want to make tonight is we don't do it. We refuse to do the arithmetic. We want the government to do a lot, and we don't want the government to pay for it. The U.S. has just gone through one of the world's largest financial crises in economic history. When you have a major financial crisis and the recession which follows, The government has to help clean up the mess. And we know this over time, from the tulip crisis of several hundred years ago to today's financial crisis. And we know, you know what we know? That when governments clean up the mess, that is stabilize 
the banking system. That is, make sure demand deposits are there when you go to the bank. Make sure your money market funds don't fall below a dollar. The government has to supply capital to the financial institutions to do that. The government has to also deal with the slowdown in the economy, the recession, the loss of jobs, the bankruptcies, the closures of plants. And that is what economic stimulus is meant to do. And does it work perfectly? No. Does it work? Yes. If you look at what the government has done and you look at the projections of any macro model in the U.S. economy, you will see that the stimulus was projected to produce about 3.5 million jobs, and that's exactly what it has done. Second area where the government, I think, has a role to play. Think about the innovative spirit of the United States. Think about technology. Think about higher education. Think about NYU. Think about the University of California. You will see that education, higher education, investments in technology, the things that build America's innovative spirit, these are big parts of what the federal government should and does do. You love social networking? Trace it back to DARPA. You love the latest biotech drug? Trace it back to the National Institute of Health. I started with the view that the government is us. The biggest area of growth in the U.S. government is entitlement spending. Entitlement spending is Social Security and Medicare. Laura Tyson, you ask I, Americans I have if they to like cut you it. off. Yes. I, I will say they like it. They don't want to pay Thank for it. Thank you very much. For the motion, big government is stifling the American spirit. Arthur Laffer, who is known as the father of supply-side economics, he is chairman of Laffer Associates and a former economic advisor to President Reagan. Ladies and gentlemen, Arthur Laffer. Uh, I want to just say that it's not partisan, it's not Republican, it's not Democrat, it's not liberal, it's not conservative, uh, it's economics. Uh, when you look at what the government has done and is doing... I think they truly are stifling the American spirit today. It reminds me very much of what happened in the 1930s. Whenever people make decisions, when they're either panicked or drunk, the consequences are rarely attractive. I mean, let me just take you through quickly what they did in the Great Depression. I mean, 1929, we passed Smoot-Hawley Tariff, the largest tax on traded products in the world. Then in 1930, it was signed into law. You got the crash in the markets. 1932, under a Republican president, they raised the highest marginal tax rate in the U.S. from 25% to 63%. 1936, under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat this time, they raised the highest marginal tax rate from 63% to 79%, and then on up the next year to 81%. You wonder why it was the longest, deepest depression in U.S. history. That's why. What you're seeing today in the United States is an exact pattern following that. When interventionist people get going, you can't stop them. Let me just try it. If something doesn't work in a two-person economy, it's not good economics. Take two farmers. That's the whole world. If one of those farmers gets unemployment benefits, guess who pays for them? The other farmer. You know, there is no Father Christmas working on the Treasury staff. If you look at tax rates on the upper income groups, these people know how to get around taxes. The only group that consistently pays less when you raise their tax rates and more when you lower them are the top 1% of income earners. That is literally what happens. I don't want to go way over your head on this. But if you tax people who work and and you pay people who don't, do I need to say the next sentence to you? (laughs) Help me. If you tax rich people and you give the money to poor people, you're going to get lots and lots of poor people 
and no rich people. There is only there is only one solution to the economic problem that we're facing. That's economic growth. And to get that economic growth, you've got to realign incentives, both in government and in the private sector, to make sure that you produce the way you should in this country. And with that, I'd like to say thank you to the group that are putting on this debate. You guys are all wonderful. Thank you. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, big government is stifling the American spirit. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Our motion is, big government is stifling the American spirit. And finally, our last opening statement against the motion comes from Nouriel Roubini, a professor at New York University's Stern School of Business and chairman of Roubini Global Economics, nicknamed Dr. Doom. Is big government stifling the American spirit? My answer is no. You heard uh, Graham and Laffer bashing big government. They are the two high priests of supply-side economics, what is also referred to as voodoo economics. It's a religion because it's based not on facts or science, but on faith. They have ten commandments. Big government and most government spending is always wasteful and stifles the American spirit. Second, free markets always know best. They never fail. They never experience financial crisis. Three, it's best to have no regulation and supervision of markets, especially financial markets. Four, high taxes are bad, especially for the rich and the very rich. Five, lowering tax rates increases revenues overall. The Laffer curve doesn't work. Even if lower taxes lead to higher deficits, higher deficits don't matter. Seven, even if lower tax rates cause higher deficits, that's good because you're going to starve the beast. You're going to force the government to cut back its own size. Eight, government spending is always wasteful unless it is for waging foreign wars that cost you trillions of dollars. Nine, nine, subsidies are bad, but subsidies and tax breaks for big business are always good. Ten, income and wealth inequality is good, as Gordon Gekko said. Greed is good. In capitalism, it's the survival of the fittest or the richest, so big government should have nothing to do with income inequality. Now, these were the principles during the Bush administration. We had the system of free markets and let's say fair economics. What did we end up with? We end up with the worst economic and financial crisis since the Great Depression. Two expensive foreign wars that were financed with $2 trillion of debt. So we are the culprits of this economic, fiscal, and financial mess. Is it big government? No. The culprits are here, by the way. Two of them are here, Mr. Laffer and Mr. Graham. And I mean it... And I mean it literally. Paul Krugman listed Mr. Graham as the number two person responsible for the economic crisis after Alan Greenspan. If you believe that Krugman is biased, both CNN and Time magazine put him in the list of the top 20 people who blame, to, to be blamed for the financial crisis. Does he, th- does he think he's responsible for some of this financial crisis? Not only he doesn't, but in a July 2008 interview when he was the advisor to McCain, he said that the nation was not even in a recession. He said, you have heard of mental depression. This is a mental recession. We have sort of become a nation of whiners. During this mental recession, 8.5 million people lost their jobs. The unemployment rate went to 10%, 17%, including discouraged workers or partial employed workers. Now, what's the record instead of Mr. Laffer? 
is the father of the Laffer curve, the idea that if you lower tax rates, revenue eventually are going to become higher. Now, there is zero, zero evidence that tax rates pay for themselves. If we have low tax rates, it's going to force the government to cut government spending. That was the argument. The result was just the opposite. When Bush came to power in 2001, discretionary spending was $260 billion at that time. By the time he left the administration eight years later, it was $420 billion, twice Mario as much. Rubini, your time is up. Okay. Thank Can you. Can I make a final point? I think, can you save it and bring it out down here? Thank you very much. Big government is stifling the American spirit. That is our motion, and now we move on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly. The side for the motion, Phil Graham, who fought to shrink government when he was in the Senate, and Art Laffer, the man behind the curve, arguing that government ties the hands of the truly creative and innovative, those who would otherwise help grow America and create jobs. The side against the motion, big government is stifling the American spirit, Laura Tyson and Nouriel Rubini, insisting that governments and laws are needed both to rescue those who are in trouble and to police those who, left to their own devices, would do much more harm than good and have in the very recent past. I want to go to the issue of substance, to the side that's arguing against the motion, and your opponents are proposing a thesis that when the rich are taxed, they stop producing growth. Can you go specifically to that issue, to that thesis, which is really the core of their argument? Laura Tyson. Well, I'm not sure I would agree it is the core of their argument, because I want to say that I think the issue that we need to discuss more is that As a country, we actually, uh, as I said, want the government to spend money, but then we don't want to pay for it. And one of the words that was only used here once tonight but needs to be brought back is the word entitlement. And I think it's important to point out right now that according to the CBO, within 15 years, entitlements plus net interest will absorb all of the tax revenues of the U.S. government. We could not do anything else. No education, no technology, no infrastructure, no other government whatsoever. And I do think we have to ask ourselves the question of, if we want to spend on programs, how are we going to but finance But how about them? the question I asked you? But I think I, I'm happy to answer that question, no, right, but I, but yeah, I honestly... But your, your, your teammate would like to know yeah, your opinion. Uh, sure. There is absolutely no evidence that increasing tax sure. rates on the rich when they are at normal levels is going to reduce labor effort. When Clinton came to power, he raised the marginal tax rates from 35 to 39 percent. Everybody, including this gentleman, said it's going to be a disaster, a recession. Guess what? We had eight years of the highest economic growth in the U.S. economy, right? And no effect on the tax burden of anybody, Okay. And then when Bush came to power, he reduced these taxes. We lost $2 trillion of revenues. We had a huge budget deficit. We eventually ended up with the worst financial crisis and economic recession since the Great Depression. So where is the evidence? Arthur Laffer. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll try to get you the evidence. I mean, let's take Bill Clinton. And Laura, I think you did a great job with Bill Clinton. And I voted for Bill Clinton twice. And God knows I didn't vote in that party's primary. Uh, if you look at it, Clinton reappointed Reagan's Fed chairman twice brought the long-term bond yield way, way down. I thought that was spectacular. Uh, If you look at what Clinton did, he passed welfare reform, signed into law welfare reform, that you actually have to look for a job to get welfare. Now, there's a concept. Clinton also had the biggest capital gains tax cut in our nation's history. Uh, If you look at Clinton, the one thing I really like most of all about Bill Clinton is he cut government spending. 
as a share of GDP by the largest amount of any American president ever. In fact, it was he cut it by four times, by as much as the next four best presidents combined. There is a supply side president, in my view. Yes, he did raise tax rates. That's on the the rate. He did raise tax rates. And that was the one mistake he made, but all the rest <laughs> were great. <laughs> Noriel Rubini. Not, did, not you know, the first thing he did was to raise taxes yes. because we had a huge budget deficit during the Reagan Bush years. It was going to become a disaster. Everybody, including you guys, said it's going to lead to an economic recession. The reality is that every time the Republicans are in power, the budget deficit becomes much larger. Because you cut taxes in a way that's unsustainable, well, you raise military spending, yeah. and you raise discretionary spending as much or more than the Democrats. During well, the Bush years, discretionary now, spending on. doubled. Phil, Phil so Graham. Starting the piece is an hypocrisy. It's Phil hypocrisy. Graham, come on in. When Ronald Reagan was president, we had a deficit of $100 billion as far as the eye could see. The deficit today is $1.5 trillion dollars. Government spending has risen by 20% in two years. Einstein was once asked, what is the most powerful force in the universe? He said, the power of compound interest. And now we've got it working against every worker and every taxpayer and every consumer in America every minute. Your point about interest payments on the debt is, is unnerving frightening. I would like to ask the question of what you would like to cut in very specific terms, very specific terms, and see whether those cuts conform with what the American people would like to cut. Okay. First of all, Ronald Reagan eliminated three Social Security benefits in one vote. Okay. So cutting Social Security, which the majority of Americans do not want to do. We're currently phasing the retirement age up to 67. Given the lifespan changes in America, 22 years from now, we're going to get to 67. We need to allow that to continue to rise to 70. It will affect nobody for the next 22 years, but it will change America a lot. We index Social Security by the wage rate, not the price level. And we pay benefits based on your high three years of earning, not what you pay in the whole system. If you change those three things, you eliminate the long-term actuarial but, problem in Social Security. And what would I okay. do about Medicare? Can I, you know. I think people ought to have co-payments and deductibles based on their income. And I think everybody ought to have a co-payment and a deductible no matter how low their income is. With somebody like uh, Art... Uh, I think his deductible ought to be about $250,000 a year. <laughs> and his co-payment after that ought to be 50%. All right, Laura, respond. That's how you change it. <clears throat> Before the list gets too long, Laura Tyson. I, I, I actually uh, could probably have a, a discussion with it. Phil Back Graham on these issues, and I suspect we would probably come to some agreement. I think what's important about this debate is not the debate, sadly, that the country is really having. If you have a debate that says big government is stifling the American spirit, it basically suggests that the problem is the government, not us. And if you ask people, and I've already said this, are you willing to cut benefits or raise taxes to bring this cost situation under control? The answer is no. And remember, as Nouriel said, going back to the Clinton-level tax rates would go back to levels of rates that 
coincided with the most prosperous peacetime period in U.S. economic history. So those are not tax rates that are going to stifle the American spirit. Art Laffer. Yeah. First, I'd like to ask Nouriel not to quote me when it's incorrect. I never thought the Clinton tax increases would lead to a recession, depression, never wrote it, never said it. And I would agree with Laura. I mean, come on, let's go back to the Clinton era. If you could bring government spending down as a share of GDP to where it was under Clinton, I I think I'd take that along with the other ones going there. I mean, you really can't have a prosperous economy, people. You can't when the government's way overspending, when it's raising tax rates, and it's when it's restricting the free flow of goods and services are, what, across what, national what, boundaries. What, you can't. What, what, what is the government here for? If you put it in terms that we've Let's, heard tonight, do, do we want meat inspectors? Do we want the levees taken of care of in New Orleans? Do we, do we want the roads taken care of? Do we want of the course. universities running? So yes. what, what is the definition well, well, for When first. is it big and when is it well, too let big? Let me go first with this. I mean, when we taught you the question you asked Laura, which I think is the right question about taxes. I mean, what I do is what Jerry Brown did when he ran for president in 1992. I get rid of all federal taxes, except for sin taxes, and have two flat rate taxes, one on business net sales and one on personal unadjusted gross income. If you did that, you could have Jerry Brown's flat tax at 13%. Make it so it's a flat tax on all income, period. And if people want more taxes and more government, once you get an efficient system, God bless them. It's their country. It's their country, and they deserve it. I mean, people deserve the governments they get. Uh, but it isn't just let it go at all times. And Nouriel, I thought, in the debate, at least when you were introduced, was that you won the debate last time you were here, Nouriel, by saying it was Washington's fault, not Wall Street's fault. Nouriel, respond. The point is that we have a huge budget deficit that everybody knows is unsustainable, a trillion dollar. But the question is, how did we get here? First of all, it happened because we had totally unsustainable tax cuts in 2001, 2003, and the collapse of income led to a collapse of revenues. And that's the situation we started from. Now, we have a budget deficit. It's 10% of GDP. Do we really think that we are going to be able to reduce spending by 10% of GDP? Everybody agrees we need entitlement spending reform. We have to restructure Social Security, Medicare. We have to cut entitlement spending. So we need to reduce the budget deficit. We have to cut spending. But we have also to raise gradually over time revenues. There is not going to be any way in which the American people are going to decide to slash Social Security, to slash Medicare, to slash military spending, and not have any revenue increase. So we have to find a way in the middle, but you guys are always on the side, lower taxes that every time they're implemented during the Reagan years or in the Bush years led to bigger budget deficit and lead to economic and financial disaster. Phil Graham. Well, first of all, I don't defend spending under George Bush. Neither do I. I thought we had an unnecessary deficit. I thought we let spending get out of control, especially after the House became Democrat and you had Pelosi as Speaker. (laughs) No, it's just a plain fact. In seeking consensus, George W. Bush spent money. Let me tell you, having looked a long time at Social Security and Medicare, you can't deal with these problems by raising taxes. You have got to be willing to change these systems and make them more actuarially balanced. When people started getting Social Security, the average American didn't live to be 65. The world has changed. The system didn't change. There was never a trust fund. Our motion is big. Government is stifling the American spirit. And now at this point in the debate, we'd like to hear from you in the audience. Just take your temperature 
on what you're hearing. And the question I want to put to you, as you listen to this debate and you listen to these panelists debate, what are you hearing that, that you are just not buying? Let's start with you, please. What I'm not hearing is the issue of jobs creation. Is it possible that lower taxes, although they would probably increase the deficit, might also stimulate jobs creation? And, sir? And in my case, what I'm not hearing is what's going to happen for, for the next generation. For us, we're graduating from school, in my case at least. I don't want to go back to Kennedy, Reagan, what they did, what they didn't. I want to know what we're going to do now to solve the crisis that we, are, we have in hand. Okay, thank you. So what we're hearing is a little bit of concern about the future, and, and Phil Graham, you actually discussed this being a very bad time to be young. Can you take on that topic? I don't know. Any time is a good time to be young. True, true, <laughs> true. Well done. Touche. Secondly, we do need to create more jobs, and that's what this debate is really about, even though, quite frankly, I didn't realize till you said it that we hadn't been talking about it. And what does your future depend on? Does it depend on government getting bigger? Does it depend on half of all income taxes going just to service the debt on government? Or does it depend on more opportunity and more freedom where ordinary people are empowered to do extraordinary things? America is not a great and powerful country because the most brilliant people in the world came to live here. It's a great and powerful country because ordinary people like us have been able to do extraordinary things with our freedom. And that's what I believe is in peril. That's why these numbers scare me. All right, let's go to questions now. Um, okay, go ahead and ask a question. I was hoping to hear more about the stiflage of the American spirit. I'm not sure that I heard exactly what the American spirit is, what percentage of the population has this American spirit now, and what, uh, in, in what way is this stiflage going to have any effect on the rest of us who go about our quotidian daily lives? Laura Tyson. Yeah. Let, 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 me, let me say a little bit about that because I, I think we can also relate it to jobs. I mean, I, I think part, when I think about the American spirit and I think about the current situation, I do worry most about young people. Uh, one of the reasons that you don't feel so much of the federal stimulus effect is because states have had to contract a lot. And you know where they contract? They contract in education. That's where they have to contract. So if you think of the American spirit as art programs, if you think of music programs, if you think of it as athletic programs, if you think of it as foreign language programs, if you think of it as your child going to school in a safe building structure that's energy efficient, all of those things are being stifled. Bill Graham, please. Phil. To me, the American spirit is a belief that based on your own merit, based on your own hard work, no matter who your daddy was or who he wasn't or who your mama was, that people are going to judge you on your ability and that you have it within your power to succeed. Now, obviously, it's better to be it's better it's better to be clever and pretty and rich. But being plain and ordinary and poor those things are not un insurmountable obstacles in America. I'm John Donvan, correspondent for ABC News Nightline and host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating. The motion is... 
Big government is stifling the American spirit. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. Big government is stifling the American spirit. Welcome back to the program. Question in the second row. Uh, To Mr. Rubini. Uh, I think we're all agreed that one thing that is stifling the American spirit is the financial crisis, as you noted in your remarks. When you were last here, you successfully argued that government is the primary cause of financial crisis, not the private sector. Ergo, it is government that is stifling to the American spirit. So I ask you, why aren't you sitting over there? Now, I realize you've just been the target of a personal attack. (laughs) Uh, You know, when I was last here, I argued that both the government and the private sector, Wall Street, too, was to be blamed about the crisis and was a crisis caused by many policy mistakes, but also by reckless risk-taking, leverage, and debt of the private sector. So it's always a complicated story. But if the American spirit is stifled today, is because this is not a mental recession. This is a real recession. This is the worst recession we have had since the Great Depression. We have an unemployment rate now at 17%. We have 9 million people out of work that have lost their jobs. And unless we address this problem, we're not going to resolve this mental and physical and economic and financial depression. Uh, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, made a study that suggested that of all the types of stimulus, the one that has the least effect on economic growth and job creation is reducing taxes for the rich. And the one that has the strongest effect on raising demand for labor is to reduce the payroll tax, both for employers and employees. We have to stop subsidizing the rich. We have to start stimulating demand for labor and for workers. That's what we need to do. Art Laffer. Yeah. Let me, let me just carry Nuriel's comments a little further, and I, I do agree with him on that, is when you look at a firm's decision to hire a worker, that firm makes its decision based upon the gross wages paid to the worker. The marginal product they have to get out of that worker has to cover the gross wages paid, inclusive of all costs. Where I do disagree with him totally is on raising tax rates in the rich, who are the people who do the employment. Let me tell you, these guys don't employ workers for altruistic reasons. And if you make it discouraging for them to employ workers, they're not going to employ them. And, and that's what you've really got to worry about. It's not an equity argument of whether the rich can afford it or not. It's whether they'll disemploy people or not. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We are in the question and answer section of this debate. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. Big government is stifling the American spirit. And I want to take to this side, one moment, I want to take to this side a specific recommendation that Nouriel makes in his new book about Wall Street compensation. He talks about the need to cure compensation, and he's not talking about the amount, he's talking about the way in which it's structured. Moreover, he says government needs to be involved in this process of curing compensation on Wall Street. Your response to that yeah, concept? Well, uh, I'll be glad to answer it. Thank Look, you. the last thing in the world we need is government setting people's compensation in the private sector. I work for a big investment bank. Some people we pay a lot of money to. Do we want to pay it? No. The problem is they'll go to work for somebody else. That's what's called competition. And when we start setting our value judgment 
as the standard by which we're going to gauge value, we start making a mistake. But the idea that government ought to be involved in setting compensation is as alien to the American spirit as any idea can be. The, the trouble... The trouble was we privatized the gains, the bonuses, the profits in good times, and then those guys led to a reckless financial crisis, and now we socialize the losses, and everybody here is to pay for those compensation. It was a $2 trillion bailout of Wall Street. Who's paying for it? But that's uh, we the are role paying of for government it. doing and that you don't bailout. want any that's control on compensation invasive. either. In Nuri, Nuri, let me just so you said it right. The government shouldn't bail these guys out. They shouldn't bail out the housing industry. They shouldn't bail out any of these guys. We, the we only pri- bailouts you should do are for individuals who are unemployed or can't help themselves for a time period. But it shouldn't be 99 weeks. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make it so it's not worth the working. Sir, um, you have a necktie. And if you stand up, a mic will come to you. That's everybody. I know. Okay, go ahead, please. Um, Pardon me if I get my facts wrong, uh, Senator Graham, but it is my understanding that the bank that you serve uh, as chairman, UBS, received a, a bailout from the government of Switzerland. Do you feel as though that is incongruous with uh, the position you're taking in this debate? Well, uh, let me say, if you, as you can tell by my accent, I'm not from Zurich. <laughs> okay. Had I been in Swiss politics, I would not have been for the bailout. I do believe, however, that it is important to note that it was government through CRA pressuring banks to make subprime loans. It was federal quotas on Freddie and Fannie where they had to hold more and more subprime paper. Freddie and Fannie have not paid their money back and probably never will. Almost all the banks have paid it back with a profit. Who owns Fannie and Freddie? I I want to say two things about this uh, financial crisis. One is just to recommend a book. The book is called This Time It's Different. It's a great book. Everyone should read it. It's uh, based on an analysis of financial crises over time and across countries. There are some basic things that are true in financial crises. They have to do with over-leverage. They have to do with interest rates, which are too low. Credit is too cheap. They have to do with overconfidence. And to say a bailout, why, why did the government step in? You know, it, frankly, it was not for tears for Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or any of the banks that received federal money. It was because credit markets had closed down. It was because things that you relied upon, as you put your money in a money market and it was worth, you went, put in $500. When you went, there was $500. There wasn't going to be $500. Question here. Regardless of the size of the government, what areas should our government uh, actually invest in directly or incentivize? Whether it's science, is it technology, is it education, is it oil, is it energy? If the American spirit is defined as innovation and creativity, you guys haven't discussed it, none of you. So I'm very curious as to what your top three investments would be and how it would happen. So can I, can I say that I, I, I thought... I, Laura, I, I want to let Phil Graham, because you've had a run. Now look. There are always areas of government you could do more in. Uh, Everybody talks about education. We have dramatically increased spending in education and quality has fallen because we let education be dominated by a monopoly, the teachers union. But when you're looking at the debt burden that we're piling up now that's not going to go away when the crisis goes away, the problem with saying let's do this later 
Phil, I, I just want to interrupt because I thought this question so – her, her question is what areas would you invest in? What would be the three areas where you would put direct through investment? Government. Through government. Well, None? first of all, I think the best investment government can make is to put its financial house in order so that we can have more private investment and more job creation. So the first thing I'd invest in is deficit reduction. Uh, the second thing that I would invest in is science. So basic science, basic knowledge, ability to do things, not just to cure people quicker and better, but to do it cheaper. We have virtually no investment in health care in economy. If I bought groceries the way I buy health care, where somebody else pays 95 cents out of every dollar, I'd eat different, and so would my dog. And that, okay, that's so, the problem So you've got healthcare. two answers to your question. I want to see if Laura Tyson has I, I, an answer. I just feel like I, I, I need to repeat, and maybe I, I – I, I look at the research. 90% of the growth in labor productivity, which is the driving force of how productive the nation is, comes from investments in those three areas. Higher education, research and science, and infrastructure. And the U.S. government used to spend 69% of its budget on it, and now it only spends 32%. And what is squeezing that out is entitlements and interest on the debt because we are unwilling to pay for the things we need to pay for. Sir. Um, as just one citizen, is it fair that I have a right to keep more of what I earn, or should I be required to give more? Yeah. Well, that's red meat to you well, guys, I think. first of all, <laughs> enjoy. I think that we define freedom far too narrowly. I was always amazed when I was in government at all of the empathy that went to people who were riding in the wagon, but no empathy for people that were pulling the wagon. On welfare, you can get $17,500 of benefits per child. And under the federal tax code, if you work for a living, you get a $1,000 tax credit per child. Shouldn't we give people pulling the wagon the same benefits we give people riding in the wagon? Laura Tyson? So, so one point we haven't raised tonight, because uh, we've talked a lot about taxing the rich and we've talked a lot about the past, so I think it's important to know that the last time the income distribution was as unequal in the United States as it was in 2008 was 1928. This is about what kind of society one wants. It's not actually about freedom or lack of freedom. It's about what kind of society one wants. And I think that if you take the idea of you own your own self, the sort of logical conclusion of that is that nobody makes any contribution to the common good unless they feel like it. So that means we'd have no justice department, we'd have no defense, we'd have no education. It would basically be what's mine is mine. I don't think that is the notion of what most Americans think is the fair society they want to live in. Thank I you, think Laura you Tyson. And that concludes round two of our debate. And here we are. We are about to hear closing statements from each debater. And it's their last chance to change your minds. And after they speak, you're going to be asked to vote once again to pick the winner. Our motion is big government is stifling the American spirit. Against this motion, Laura Tyson, a professor at the Haas Business School at Berkeley and member of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board.
Uh, I will just reiterate uh, my main points. I think that uh, citizens look to government to do things. Right now, the government has been forced to do more than it normally does because of the crisis. I think it is important for the government to invest in our future, and I've made that clear how the government should do that. And finally, I would say that I do think that we need to, as a society, ask ourselves the question about what kinds of benefits we want and what are we willing to pay for. Because what has happened in the starving the beast uh, mentality is we actually have made the tax base smaller. You know, not only did we fight two wars without financing them under President George W. Bush, but we also passed the Medicare Prescription Drug Benefit Program. That was more than a trillion dollars. No funding. The CBO said that would cost a trillion dollars with no funding. The CBO in the trillion-dollar bill that was just passed said it pays for itself. My point is, if we want that kind of benefit, we better be serious about how to pay for it, because right now, our government is not that big. Laura Tyson. Our motion is big government is stifling the American spirit. And here to summarize his position for this motion, Phil Graham, a former senator and chairman of the Banking Committee, currently vice chairman at UBS Investment Bank. I believe that government is stifling the American spirit. Uh, When we look 10 years into the future and we see government taking almost half of all income taxes simply to pay interest on the debt, this is a future that I don't want for America. And I don't want to dwell on the past. I was asked about the past versus the future, but the past is the only thing we know about the future. When Ronald Reagan became president, people sensed that we had a crisis. We had to make hard decisions. America made those decisions because they believed there was a crisis. I believe there's a crisis today, and more importantly, I believe that Americans believe it. But what they're waiting on is leadership to show them the alternative. It's just like, to end with a medical analogy, you get sick, you go to the doctor. The options he gives you are often not very palatable, especially if you're very sick. But you do it because you believe that you'll get better if you do those things. I believe Americans can show courage and can show sacrifice if they believe that America will be benefited in the end. And that's what this crisis is about. Phil Graham, your time is up. Thank you very much. The motion is big government is stifling the American spirit. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Nouriel Roubini, a professor at New York University Stern School of Business and chairman of Roubini Global Economics. Is the American spirit stifled because of big government? And not at all, because tax revenue today are at the lowest level they've been in the last 50 years. 15% of GDP. There used to be an average of 20. So the problem is not with too much taxes. Is the American spirit uh, stifled because we have a mental recession today? No. We have the worst economic and financial crisis, recession, and depression we've had in the last uh, few decades. Every time they talk... They blame everything on big government, but their true agenda is different. Every time they pass reckless and unsustainable tax cuts, mostly for the rich, they privatize in good times the gains and the profits, and after they cause a massive economic and financial crisis, they socialize all the losses and bail out Wall Street. They privatize the gains, they socialize the losses. They don't believe in capitalism, 
They don't believe in small government. They don't believe in the American spirit. They believe in big government, socialism, and welfare for the rich, the well-connected, and for Wall Street. That's what they do. Thank you, Nuriel Roubini. The motion is big government is stifling the American spirit. And our final speaker, to summarize his position in support of this motion, Arthur Laffer, chairman of Laffer Associates and a former economic advisor to President Reagan. If I can just start off by looking at the issue at hand here today, is big government stifling the American spirit? I think that at least three, if not all four of us, uh, agree that that is the case. I mean, I look at Nuriel Rabini and what he's been saying, and it's been exactly what we've been saying. Well, should we socialize all the losses for these companies? Absolutely not. But when you can't have a profit and loss system without losses. For people who overborrowed on their income, for banks that were undercapitalized, if they made a play and it's wrong, let them lose. Government is way too big. Should we invest in a flat rate tax where the government's not meddling in every single person? Yes, we should. We should do all of that. Government is way too big, and it is stifling uh, the American spirit, as these two and the two of us all agree. You can't have more people sitting in the wagon than you have pulling it. I used to tell my students that if I ran this class like your government runs your country, what I'd do is I'd flunk all the A students out and I'd give all the F students scholarships. But before you laugh, think about it for a second, before you laugh, my A students are a little bit smarter than my F students. So once I change the rules, my A students are able to get lower grades than my F students because they don't randomly make a mistake of ever guessing a correct answer. The distribution of grades is unchanged, period. There's not one change. But what have I done? I've destroyed the entire quality of the educational process. You cannot change the distribution of income with taxes, but you can change the volume. Government is too big, and it's stifling the American spirit, as we all agree up here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Art Laffer. And that concludes our closing statements, and now it is time to learn which side is argued best. Um, and I also want to thank our panel. You know, when, I, when, I, when it suddenly dawned on me that we had four Ph.D. economists, I kind of thought... Oh, boy. But no, this was robust and engaged and spirited, and I thank all of you for really bringing your A-games to this. All right, now it's all in. I've been given the results. Remember, the team that has changed the most minds here is declared the victor, and here it is. Before the debate, 29% of you were for the motion, 44% against, and 27% undecided. After the debate, 49% are for the motion, that's up 20%, 43% against, that's down 1%. We have 8% undecided. The side arguing for the debate has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan from Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.